Hello and welcome to the Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. This episode is supported by 21 Lectures. 21 Lectures' mission is to bring more developers to the Bitcoin ecosystem with in-person courses. Lectured by world-renowned Bitcoin and Lightning developers, courses teach participants the fundamentals to work with blockchain technologies. To learn more, visit 21lectures.com. This episode has support from CoreLedger. CoreLedger is a blockchain-based peer-to-peer transaction infrastructure provider. It enables businesses to document, tokenize, and trade any type of assets in a reliable and flexible environment. CoreLedger makes anything transactable, literally anything. To learn more about CoreLedger's technology and how you can transform your business onto blockchain, visit coreledger.net. That's C-O-R-E-L-E-D-G-E-R.net. coreledger.net. My guest today is David Waxman. David is the founder and CEO of Waxman, a leading global professional services firm for the blockchain industry. David and his team have represented and acted as strategic consultants to more than 120 organizations in the blockchain space, including Dash, Indiegogo, Crypto Valley Association, Bitcoin Swiss, Coindesk, IOHK, Lisk, Rootstock, Steemit, and many more. Before founding his own company, David held roles in public relations, advertising, political affairs, and biotechnology. And now to the conversation with David Waxman. Hi, David, and many thanks for taking time today. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. So let's jump right in and speak about storytelling in the blockchain space. You have said in the past that you help companies that use complicated technology tell a good story. Now, how do you go about that? So at Waxman, we do something very, very traditional and what I think is among the most unorthodox spaces on earth. We do real PR with real messaging frameworks and real professional approaches to earned media uh, primarily, um, in fact, almost entirely. So what that means is we help a company, let's take it, let's say it's a blockchain protocol uh, development company, figure out what makes them special, figure out what matters to their core audiences. And then we help tell the story through the media to those intended audiences. So when you're talking to media, you're talking to the most cynical people on earth. That's their job. Their job is to distinguish the wheat from the chaff. And they're not going to believe almost anything you're saying unless you're able to go and substantiate that. So we work with companies and say, okay, don't claim to be the first, don't claim to be the biggest, don't claim to be the best, unless you can really, really prove it. In fact, do everything you can, and I know this sounds a little counterintuitive, to cut out adjectives and adverbs as few as possible. Describe the problem you're solving and how you're solving it and with as many use cases as possible. Use cases are gold, especially in the blockchain space. We don't have a whole lot of tangible products. We've got hardware wallets, maybe some mining rigs. There's not that much that's physical. There are some blockchain-based applications or dApps sometimes, but even those are few and far between. So at this point, having something material, like a use case can be really, really helpful. Like for instance, how a company could be a farm to fork blockchain, talking about how a cow when milked um, you can actually track through an app that, and using blockchain technology, of course, that you can check whether that cow has been inoculated. Um, if the milk that came out of the cow 
uh, was processed and pasteurized properly, if the, if the food truck ever exceeded a certain temperature, those are things media could be interested in. In fact, they're even more interested not in this technology will exist. They want to know how technology exists today, what problems are being solved now. So if some of this stuff is pure theory, um, it's not going to go and translate well to media in 2019. That might have played well in 2016, 2017, but uh, th- that the era of theory alone is, is far past. Mm-hmm. Interesting point. It's it's good that you mentioned that. It may have worked in the past, but now it won't anymore. I mean, how have you seen some of these stories evolve in the blockchain space in the in the past few years? Well, I'll give you a great example. Um, I had this wonderful client called Coinsetter. It was my first ever company in the blockchain space. They were a Bitcoin exchange based in New York. And in beginning of 2016, we were able to announce, and we had every reason to believe this, that a company acquiring them made the largest transaction in Bitcoin M&A in history. Hmm. And it got an enormous amount of attention. The, the acquiring company was called Kraken, and I worked with them for much of 2016. And if you, you check the media, you'll see that this, was, this made huge waves. At the time, we didn't even describe the size of the acquisition. We didn't describe um, who or kind of how the acquisition occurred because was this an all-cash deal? Was this cash in stock? Were there other considerations, et cetera? We didn't describe many of the details that someone reporting on a transaction would typically write about just because at the time, there weren't that many similar stories and therefore got a lot of attention. Um, if you are a company and you simply added a new advisor to your company, that might have been meaningful, especially someone from the quote-unquote real world in 2016. But in 2019, every company has great advisors, or at least all the ones that are really worth it. As I said, you really have to go and boil down to what does a company actually do? How do they solve real problems? Who is their team? What are their team working on all the time? Um, what's their approach to problem solving? I, I think that's where the news lies. And that's what reporters seem to be interested in. And so we often advise our clients to try and, and develop those type of stories. If they don't have it yet, we'll, we'll help advise them on how best to go and accomplish the things that are newsworthy. And that's the way we can tell a better story. Mm-hmm. Cool. Makes a lot of sense. You mentioned, you know, reporters and, and the media a few times uh, just in the last uh, few minutes. So I, I'm wondering, where do you see the role of the media in, in the blockchain space? So media's first job is to go and figure out whether something's true or not. But if it is true, I think that their job is to be able to champion things that are worth it and defend uh, people against uh, spurious claims. Those two things, they can do both at the same time. One of the great challenges that mainstream media faces in particular is the education gap, first with the obvious one, which is with their audience. Most people simply don't get blockchain even in 2019. However, most people probably understand the general premise of Bitcoin so far as it's a digital currency of some type. Most people get that concept, but most people do not understand how blockchain works, um, what the purpose is, and what are the various different use cases uh, of a distributed ledger with the various characteristics of, of blockchain. The second audience, which is I think is a little more interesting, is reporters have a second job that they don't talk about often in their articles. That is convincing and discussing what they've learned with other reporters in the newsroom and with their editors. This is a very high bar and hurdle because, as I've already said, reporters are super cynical. So now you've got reporters trying to discuss complicated stuff that changes all the time with other reporters who are both cynical and have other specific interests. They may not be assigned to to a certain beat. But what we've seen is a lot of, and this is where reporters have become real heroes, they're going out there and championing blockchain technology um, and similar type of tech in their newsrooms, and they're doing a great job. And what I've noticed over time is that more and more reporters that I talk to 
they've got it. They, they understand. And even ones that aren't necessarily on this beat, that is to say they don't report about blockchain companies on an everyday basis, more and more of them understand how that might work with, say, financial services, if that's their focus, or with insurance, if that's their focus, or with gaming, or with sports, or with social networks, or any other type of vertical that blockchain is applicable to. Um, I think we have a long way to go there, but I think we've made a lot of progress so far. And that's primarily due to some of the early journalists who came into the space and basically spent time swimming in this 24-7 until they were one of us. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Don't you think that can also be a challenge, you know, if reporters got in very early and now have become part of the blockchain scene, you know, for lack of a better word, isn't that also creating some kind of distance between their readers who might be very new to the, to the whole topic? It's, it's a challenge. And the idea of having to spend to do Crypto 101 with everyone you talk to, so you can go and use that as a foundational layer and then build on top of that and describe kind of the, the history of Bitcoin, the history of blockchain. And then from there, what they may have developed, right? That is a lot to talk about in, let's say, a five-minute segment on TV. In fact, it's impossible. It's just impossible. So yes, I, I think that's actually a concern. The, what, what excites me, though, is that blockchain is, because of all the attention it's received, because of all the capital that's been committed to it thus far, because of all the IQ points that have flooded into the space, I feel like we're reaching a, a point where blockchain is no longer going to be talked about in the products that use blockchain. It's simply going to be a tech in a stack for a product. And we've even started taking this positioning with some companies. You might be a fintech making banking transactions cheaper or faster or safer or more accountable. You don't need to use the word blockchain in that. That's not to say that you're denying it or trying to hide it, but that's no longer the primary feature, the fact that you're using a certain technology. That's a means, not the end. The end here is something that makes, let's say, banking safer, cheaper, faster, whatever it may be. Uh, or it could be something else. It could be for data exchanges. We've also seen this too, where companies might be using blockchain to allow consumers to own their own data. Uh, and I don't want to say profit from, but own their own data and be able to sell it if they want and permission it. I think that's a really powerful use case of blockchain. And again, you don't necessarily need to go and talk about the blockchain the whole time because you don't necessarily need to know how the sausage is made to understand that the sausage tastes very good. And if I'm a consumer that's just trying to own my data, so it's like Facebook or some other big company doesn't have complete control of it, I care more about that fact than I do about whether or not a DAG was used as opposed to a DPoS blockchain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. I mean, speaking of sausages, there's another saying about the sausage factory. It's, it's ugly in the sausage factory, right? <laughs> well, blockchain, blockchain, I'd call a very interesting factory. I think there are there's so many brilliant people and from all over the world. That's, that's the great thing about this. Um, and, I, and I know you've, you've faced the same as someone who's traveled the world I and mean, lived in all over the world. In, in blockchain, we've got people from everywhere contributing lots of ideas. So I'd say it's um, a chaotic manufacturing plant. But, uh, but a brilliant one. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you have some clients also who are very vocal about the fact that they want a different kind of PR than maybe other clients in, in other industrial sectors or even tech sectors? Yeah, so I think there are different ways to stand out. And thought leadership is a, is a very big one. But for us, we only work in the earned media space that I described mm -hmm. earlier. Earned media means? Earned media means no pay-for-play, no advertising, no, no subterfuge. Every, everything is very much open 
we go, we talk to reporters, reporters write stories if and only if they want. And the vast majority of the time they don't want to, and they have their own spin. They own the press. We simply go and do our very best to support them in their efforts um, and essentially act as support for media. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's our job is to help media tell stories, help our clients position themselves well so that media hopefully um, takes advantage of, uh, of some of their news hooks and ideas. That's our job is to, is to assist companies and media alike. So on the, but however, there are times when you need to go and distinguish yourself through your own words and through own channels, whether it's through your blogs or a medium or through byline articles, that is say articles that are your name that are posted somewhere in some contributing uh, place. Again, that stuff is, is very, very important to get the message out with your own words. Specifically, when things are very, very complicated, you might need to do that, where you can't risk the possibility that someone might get even the smallest detail wrong. Mm-hmm. The other thing is it's very important to stand out, especially in blockchain, I think, via conferences. Now, the conference circuit, as they say, got vast. My events team went through 800 different conferences last year vetting them, just in the cryptocurrency space alone. That's how many popped up last year that we, we know about and that we vetted on behalf of our clients. But I do think it's very important, although some of those conferences aren't all that great. There are a lot of great ones, and I think it's important to go and meet people. And when you're building something complicated, when you're building something that you want developers building on top of or partners using as part of their tech stack, you need to go out there and meet them. You need to shake their hand, answer their questions. And I think that's been one of the great things about being uh, or going to conferences and attending them is I've had a chance to ask questions of many, many people. Um, and I've been able to watch conference attendees and speakers and sponsors talk to each other and kind of build a bit of a community and, and to ask those challenging questions and to share ideas. It's, it's amazing the amount of, of deals that I've seen that got put together because two people met with different ideas and different platforms, but when they got together, they were able to find some sort of confluence there to everyone's benefit. And, and that's been really interesting. So that's another way to go and get attention is by going to these types of conferences and standing out. Mm-hmm. Interesting conferences. Um, the last few conferences I went to were packed. I mean, there were so many people there, so many exhibitions, and it was almost impossible for individual projects, I felt, to cut through through the noise. Um, how do you deal with that for your clients? Yeah, it, some conferences are small and intimate. Others are, are vast. And I think it depends on what type of, of company you are. As an example, If you are a consumer technology company selling uh, a product or a game, being at CES in Las Vegas is a very big deal. That might be just the right place for you to go and reach a very, very mainstream and broad audience far outside of blockchain. But if you are a developer showcasing a new scalability, uh, let's go protocol, or a second layer solution, you might want to do that at something closer to DevCon or scaling Bitcoin or something along those lines because you're going to find the right audience there. And so it's very important to kind of pick where you're going to go and be very decisive about it. And then once you get there, you need to take advantage of, of the time you have because there's only so many hours or days of the conference. And to your point, if you pick the wrong one and you don't know, you don't kind of prepare in advance, you, you could basically waste a lot of time and money and energy. And like I said, there's only so much of that in a day. Out of those 800 conferences, I'm just curious, how many did you think were worth attending for your clients? Quite a lot. I'd say uh, between 50 and 100, I would assume. These are all over the world, you must remember. And this is another important thing about blockchain is that this crosses borders all the time. I've traveled to, I can't even imagine how many countries in the last year and spent months on the road. And that's because that's where blockchain is, is everywhere. You can meet incredible companies in Vietnam, 
you can meet extraordinary businesses and people in Australia and Finland and Denmark and the UK. Um, it's, it's, it's a truly remarkable thing. And we've seen a lot of innovation happen all over the place. And you got to travel there. Yes, you can sit behind a computer and, and, and read all about it. But I think there's something special personally about going there and meeting the people who are doing the great work and being able to get to know them. Mm -hmm. Cool. When you work with clients, David, what is the main misconception that you find that they have about your work and maybe PR in general? Yeah, I don't think people necessarily always know what PR itself is, especially our style. What we do is something very, very traditional. It's something companies have been doing for decades and decades and decades, something that I learned from a very traditional shop working with nonprofits, for instance, where it was, how do you go and contact media and find a newsworthy hook and then provide that hook to media, let them make the assessment and then work with them to achieve what is hopefully a good end on behalf of your client and do this on repeat to build a company's brand. It's, a, it's an intricate process. It's one that takes time. There's a lot of logistics and there's no guarantees ever, 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 ever. I, I couldn't guarantee a placement in the smallest blog for the biggest announcement. It's just not possible until you actually hear a reporter say, yes, we'll run this story. Um, yes, we'll go and cover this and assign a reporter, for instance, to do it. Or a podcaster says, yes, I'd like to do this interview. Uh, until that happens, there's no guarantees. And that's simply the nature of working in this business. It's, it's a business where you are constantly at the edge of your seat, doing your very best on behalf of, of hopefully great organizations. And I've been very lucky to be able to be selective and, uh, and then and showcasing uh, what the best they've got is. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is your value proposition to some of these companies? Because I'm sure, you know, startups in the space may say, you know, our you know, a CEO can write this article or we hire somebody, maybe even, you know, abroad, remote to write some, some blog posts for us that we can spread on social media. So how do you, how do you differentiate, you know, what a, what a big PR firm does from, from that kind of communications? Um, public relations agencies like mine, our job is to go and tell stories that either exist and help companies figure out what stories should exist and then broadcast them. Mm -hmm. I'd say a lot of companies, they're not ready for a PR agency or it wouldn't be appropriate for them. It would be a waste of their money. If a company doesn't have any news, if they don't have anything distinguishing them, if they don't have any capital, if they can't go meet people, it's, it's a harder approach. Um, I think that uh, the types of, in fact, last year we turned down more than 1000 companies. Oh, cool. That's good to hear. <laughs> we, we spend a lot of time doing due diligence as much as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And we, often share that diligence and work with other, other great players in the space to make sure that we're working with the best companies. Because for us, you know, we're calling up a reporter and we're saying, hey, CNBC, hey, Coindesk, hey, Cointelegraph, this just came out or is about to come out. What do you think? And if we don't have something newsworthy. If we don't have a company that we want to represent, um, it it's, makes our job harder, even impossible. So we've been lucky to be able to be selective and I, and I believe work with a lot of amazing companies too. Um, but so as far as those other companies, I actually have a lot of advice for companies that aren't able to afford a PR agency or for whom it's not necessary. And, and that number one thing is you need to have a real product if you want to get attention in 2019. So if you don't have a product, build one, build something and have real partnerships. Um, at least develop a proof of concept, although many will tell you even that's insufficient in today's world. Uh, a white paper, so to speak, is not enough anymore. It would need to be something truly amazing probably peer-reviewed, 
and probably reviewed by many of the other uh, otherwise well-known experts. This is typically how it works. Beyond that, build a font of information, a foundation uh, of, of content yourself first. Have something for people to check. One of the great things, for instance, about for instance, the Cardano project is that by the time most of the world found out about it, the IOHK, which is the research team that helped build it, uh, they essentially assembled an enormous amount of, of work from some of the top scientists and cryptographers in the world. So that when people found out about this, they were able to check and see that there was enormous amount of innovation and science behind the technology that was being unveiled. I think that type of, of approach is really meaningful and works because there's real substance there. And I think that's something that even in 2019 and going into 2020, we're going to see is going to be an approach that works. So build up that content library, make sure it's substantive. Uh, again, if I were this reporter and I were getting 100, 500 emails a day, would I find this interesting enough to spend my time to submit a story on this, uh, to even consider this or interview uh, the subject? Consider that first before it is that you, you know, go out to me. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is supported by 21 Lectures. 21 Lectures' mission is to bring more developers to the Bitcoin ecosystem with in-person courses. Lectured by world-renowned Bitcoin and Lightning developers, courses teach participants the fundamentals to work with blockchain technologies. 21 Lectures covers cryptography, the structure of transactions and blocks and how they are chained, smart contract language, the Lightning Protocol, as well as software and toolkits to develop on top of the blockchain and Lightning. To learn more, visit 21lectures.com. This episode has support from Core Ledger. Core Ledger is a blockchain-based peer-to-peer transaction infrastructure provider. It enables businesses to document, tokenize, and trade any type of assets in a reliable and flexible environment. Core Ledger makes anything transactable, literally anything. With Core Ledger's highly dependable, fast-to-implement products, businesses can reduce costs and improve processes. Individuals can benefit from the full ownership of their own assets and make transactions directly with another party. To learn more about Core Ledger's technology and how you can transform your business on the blockchain, visit coreledger.net. That's C-O-R-E-L-E-D-G-E-R.net. Coreledger.net. Yeah. I think that's fantastic advice, David, the power of content. I mean, I've seen this with my films. I've seen this with my podcasts. Um, the reach can be crazy. And I'm always wondering why so few companies are doing things like that content library that you just described. I, I agree. I think that's what's going to go and provide substance. Because if I'm an enterprise company trying to pick between two different uh, tech uh, providers, I'm going to probably pick the one that has more substance. Uh, and these, the ultimate credentials are what, what have you actually done? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a good point. And there also size doesn't really matter. I mean, even, you know, a few people, a small team can create really good content and really good knowledge library. So I think that's quite quite interesting approach there. Um, Absolutely. Especially the people who are actually building the tech. They're the ones who have the best ability to communicate what makes a difference special. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, David, how did you how did you get into into this business? You know, into the into the PR business, but also more specifically into the blockchain PR space. So I've always been interested in writing, and I've always been interested in economics. And so 
the confluence of those two interests turned out to be doing eventually blockchain public relations and building a firm that does that as the core of, of, of what is actually our more services. But in 2014, I was working and kind of running day to day for a different public relations agency in New York. Mm-hmm. But I was out at a bar for uh, at a party for technology companies. And I met the CEO of a Bitcoin exchange. That exchange was Coinsetter. And that evening, which went on very, very long, I learned that Bitcoin exchanges were becoming, and even early 2014, increasingly commoditized with fewer and fewer differences between the exchanges outside of the fact that they had differing trading volumes. And back then, even the biggest exchange, which was Bitstamp, even they had very small volumes relative to what we see today. It's just, that's how much things have changed. But they were trying to distinguish themselves. And they actually had ways of distinguishing themselves. For instance, and much of your audience might know this, but most of the outside world wouldn't, these guys had developed the first ever fixed API for exchanges, which is a, a way for, let's call it uh, machine-based traders to access the data feeds and make trades um, on, on their own computers, for instance, without using the order book interface on the web. So this company had that tech. They didn't know how to tell that story well. They didn't know how to tell the story of some of the new features that they were adding, whether they changed from uh, regular fees to maker-taker pricing, which is a way for, uh, to try and inspire more trading on the platform. And why do you care about that? Well, not just to go and increase fees to the exchange, but liquidity very much matters because if you're trying to choose between exchanges, you might choose one with tighter spreads, for instance. It's, it's a more accurate price discovery mechanism. Mm-hmm. So having the opportunity to tell these stories for this exchange, I was forced to learn about things like Bitcoin, how it works. What is mining? What are wallets? What's a hardware wallet? Um, how do you secure these things? And then, of course, an enormous amount that I got to learn about kind of the entire scene, um, where things were going, and I got to meet many of the players in, in 2014. I, I thought that I was coming in very, very late. Mount Gox already happened in the end of 2013, the disaster, and it was, it was a very tough slog. But in 2015, the CEO of that company asked me to found my own company. And so I found a software wallet called Airbits, a hardware wallet called Trezor, a mining pool that accompanied it called Slush Pool, the first one ever, a blockchain-based VC, and a Bitcoin ATM network called CoinSource. And with that, I founded Wax. Hmm. Cool. In 2015. Mm-hmm. It just so happened that was in the right place at the right time in New York City and had an array of, com- of clients that are in the space with the idea being that if I were able to specialize, reporters might actually call me. I wouldn't always have to call them. And the media list, so to speak, of the reporters that are relevant for one client might be relevant for another client too, or at least there'd be some sort of sharing. And so we've grown from one person to dozens to 100 people with offices in New York, Dublin, and Singapore. And at its core, it's the same concept, that the connection between these companies, the specialization, um, that let's call it relative domain expertise, could be something that could benefit all of the different clients. And as it turns out, the staff that I've been able to hire and train as well. You, you, you said you founded company in 2015. So in just three years... You know, you 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 grew to a hundred people. I mean, that's very very impressive. Um, how did you know how to how to run an agency like this at this scale? Well, to be honest, I I had made some of it up as I went, and I relied on the counsel of the best people I knew. This is actually the real trick. I had these clients that were building companies themselves, and I had the rare privilege of being able to call up the CEO and ask, 
what do you do about this? How do you know that someone's the right cultural fit? How do you expand geographically? How do you ensure that the cultures are maintained over time? How do you build a real operations backbone? And I feel very lucky that you know, it's been able to sustain. In 2015, I wanted to have a three-person agency, me and two others. That was my wild dream that could sustain itself. And all I wanted to do is work in the Bitcoin space. That's it. I just wanted to work with companies in Bitcoin and be able to tell their stories to reporters. And if I had two people to work with and do that every day that kind of shared a vision with me, I would have been happy as a clam. And I just got lucky that I was at the right place at the right time with the industry growing very rapidly, but it's been able to become more than that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What was, I mean, you mentioned before that many people gave you good advice on, on your journey there as an entrepreneur. What was the best advice that you got? So the best bit of advice, or at least the one that comes to mind first, company culture is completely impossible to preserve. Hmm. It's like a river insofar as if you stick your finger in twice, it's actually, it's, it's different water that's there, right? It's a different current. And when you're hiring someone, you know what the existing organizational culture is like. Whoever you hire is going to influence that one way, another, or another. And be super confident that who you're hiring is going to be additive instead of subtractive or someone who's going to poison the culture that you've built so far. And so we, I spend a lot of time in addition to pouring over whether or not someone is the right fit from a pure CV perspective, if they, they're the, a brilliant writer or if they understand the technicals or if they have a background that would be super additive, they speak multiple languages and can be helpful to companies across the globe. You got to figure out, are they people that I would want to go and work with for nine hours a day? Would I want someone, my, my colleagues to work nine hours a day with this person? And we've been lucky to hire many, many, many people that fit that mold. And they've been able to grow with each other and add new types of things in there. For instance, I'm personally not all that good at, at certain types of processes. I've just, I'm, I'm, I'm less hyper-organized than, than many people that I've been able to hire. And they've been able to add that kind of new elements to, to it, including we have all these training modules. When someone starts with Waxman, they get something like 40 different 40 hours of training that are actually developed and, and broadcast by the team individually to a new person at Waxman. So by the time they really get started, they've really acclimated quite well. And they've learned about things like how we approach media, how we build a media list, um, what is blockchain, uh, and, and, and a number of other things. It's been, a, it's been a remarkable thing and it's been a team effort, but it, it came down to kind of that first principle, which is every time you add somebody, you're adding someone new. And you can't assume that the company is going to operate the same way after they join than before. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So then would you say the most important thing in a company are the people working there? By 10 miles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a cliche, but it's always true. I mean, it's just... Well, no, especially for a professional services firm. I, I can't speak for manufacturing where one day robots might take out many of the people actually doing the work today. And then it's about simply the end product and whether it's cheaper, faster, better than what came before. But, but when it comes to professional services... What you're doing is you're essentially hiring people's time, energy, focus, connectivity, relationships. That's what you're hiring. And so it's really all about the people. And my, many of my employees have gone to conferences all around the world. They've been able to meet so many people. Of course, they have strong relationships with, with, with my clients as well. And I think that's what makes things so great. And they have great relationships with each other. So it really is all about the people. And you should spend an enormous amount of time training people that you work with and learning from them. It's just listening to them has been uh, some of the best uh, 
work that I've done so far. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Maybe also regarding clients, you know, the clients that you work with, how you work with them, what are important learnings that you had there on your journey? Well, what we've seen is a rapid maturation of the industry. So when I started working in this industry, as I mentioned, I had a Bitcoin exchange as a client and that had 10 people. Mm -hmm. As uh, It was small. They worked in a co-working space, a very cool one, a co-working space. And today we'll have clients that are, that are equity valued in the billions, right? Or some of the largest token teams that exist or the biggest exchanges or, or other types of organizations, enterprises sometimes. Or if they're a startup, they might be a startup, but they've got some real superstars who have been working in various industries. We, we've seen this kind of change in the industry where it's gone from three people with simply a great idea on a message board and it's turned into kind of a much more professional and sometimes corporate world. And, and that's, I think, sometimes a bit of a shame because I personally love the startup space. I love working with very young companies and with entrepreneurs with simply great ideas who need help to get them off the ground, or even better, ones who don't need help, but you get to be along for the ride or, or watch and support them. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's something that I feel like we're, we're kind of losing over time as the space matures, but it's, it's amazing the, the quality of product and output has vastly improved. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you think there's today, there's still space for new entrants, new small companies coming into the space and wanting to do something that's new, that's maybe not being done yet in, in the blockchain space? Absolutely. There will always be room for startups because they can simply pivot and move faster than enterprises. Mm -hmm. Cool. It's incredible. When you work with an enterprise, um, especially from the service side, and you need to go and get six checks before someone says yes, yeah. versus work with a startup where there's one, there, that's an inherent advantage that I have seen time and time and time again myself um, be successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of the blockchain companies, you know, despite their um, reputation as being revolutionaries and all that, they've become very corporate, I feel, you know, very complicated structures, lots of C-level executives, lots of partners in there. It's certainly changing the, the atmosphere. Um, and that's why you got to go to different conferences. There's some conferences where people are very OG, they're, they're very much um, Bitcoin crypto anarchists. And that's, of course, the origin of this industry. Something, by the way, I hope is never forgotten that the reason Bitcoin and blockchain came about is because there were people with philosophical ideas and they built a technical solution that they thought would help implement some of their goals and dreams. I think that's something that we should never, ever forget, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. Cool. Where do you see, you know, other technologies like, uh, you know, maybe AI, data, science, automation, robotics, drone technology? How do you see that intersect with blockchains? The core thing that ties them together is that they're emerging technologies and the people that are succeeding in those fields, the ones who are most interested in it are people with lots of IQ points, lots of creativity and enormous, enormous personal drive. That's what I've seen from the leaders in all of those different spaces and, and some of the new entrants as well. And, and that's why they're so excited because that's where innovation is happening in these emerging technology verticals. How do they intersect? In many ways, but it, again, it goes by use case. I don't think you should think, let's take AI and blockchain and merge them for no good reason. There has to be a purpose for it. Maybe it is that, that you want to go and create a marketplace for artificial intelligences that might be applicable to the, the Internet of Things devices made by a certain manufacturer. That might be a, a good use case, for instance. And then you might build a specific solution, maybe some middleware solution or some platform that can go and solve problems. And it just so happens to be using AI. 
happens to be using blockchain, happens to be using IoT. But it, it's the use case you've got to go and, and solve. You've got to solve the problems. Um, and technology, as I said, is a means to solve those problems, not the problem, or sorry, not the end itself. And I think uh, the intersection of those technologies is simply because they often are, they, they make sense together. They happen to work well together. For instance, blockchain as its core is, is about having some sort of database on steroids. And big data is all about having an enormous amount of data. So this way, analytics can be performed on it. And AI is nothing more than a, a huge data set and essentially programming to make sure that you can pull applicable data from that data set uh, to make, let's call it decisions. Mm-hmm. Our contracts run on these types of decisions, for instance, or from Oracle. So these things can intersect and work together very, very well. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot more of the intersection of not just those technologies, but those technologies and major industry verticals as well. Uh, whether it's in the transportation space or supply chain, where the, the, the confluence of those technologies will be really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. Cool. David, in your, in your life, or also, of course, in your work, who are your role models? So in my life, I'd say my father first. He was a neurosurgeon and a lawyer who was the first person in his family to go to high school. And I think that's a pretty remarkable thing for someone to care that much about education and spend so many years in school and training to help many people. I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, in the industry, I have some role models too. So I'm a big fan of, of one of my clients, Charles Hoskinson. I think he's perhaps the most brilliant man I've had the chance to meet. And I listen to him every time I can. And I suggest all of you do the same. Um, I'm a big fan of journalists like Pete Rizzo, who have been able to sort the wheat from the chaff, as well as anybody in the industry. And um, I'm always on the lookout for other types of entrepreneurs with enormous integrity and vision, like Rob Villion from Horizon and formerly known as Zencash. These are the types of people who really stand out to me. And, and there are many, many more that I can name, but who are really making a difference and, and have a, a sort of personal integrity that just shines and everyone who meets them can get it. Mm-hmm. Cool. What are you currently in the process of learning? Gosh, uh, that's a great question. I think one of the, one of the problems that I'm looking at um, quite a lot right now is how to handle more international transfers of what's called process. So we have many clients now that essentially need coverage 24-7. So how do you do handoffs between, from one office to another? How do you take information in one person's head, not just a data set, this is not a spreadsheet, and get someone else to be fully on it um, a few hours later or you know, at the end of your day, the beginning of theirs? How do you do that? How do you do that successfully and repeatedly? Uh, that's something that I'm thinking about quite a lot right now. Um, I'm also thinking about where is where where are security tokens going and how fast. It's a really fragmented space right now. It's much more fragmented than I think the general public realizes at this point because the regulatory regimes in all these different jurisdictions are often vastly different. There's no single framework for what a security token is. Uh, there are some who argue security tokens don't exist. They're just securities with some sort of technology behind them. Fine. Um, security token exchanges have only begun. ATSs in the United States start trading, but there's very limited. I, I think we're on the press of something really extraordinary that could truly affect financial services, but we're at the very beginnings. And, and that chaos, I think we're going to go and find a lot of amazing companies uh, take shape. Mm-hmm. Cool. Excellent. What kind of stories do you see on the horizon in the future? for blockchain technology 
a couple. I think that we're going to see, hopefully, some great stories about philanthropy from blockchain. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of people build remarkable businesses in this industry. And my hope is that we see some of those people who have done very well give back in the way that we've seen the titans of industries beforehand do the same. That's one. Two, as a consequence of the uh, protracted crypto winter, I'm guessing we're going to see a lot of M&A. Huge amount of mergers and acquisitions and consolidation of some of the company, incumbent companies within the space where one plus one equals three. So I think that we're going to see that uh, happen quite a lot in 2019. Mm -hmm. Cool. Interesting. David, this was really great. And many thanks for taking time. Thank you very much for having me, Manuel. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. More info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website, theblockchainandus.com. To help people find this podcast, it's important that you download, subscribe, and give it a top rating and review on iTunes or on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm Manuel Staggers, and I thank you very much for listening.